speaking of giving, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, giving today. And we are in a conversation that started back in October. It's called The Life You've Always Wanted is the series we've been in. It's based on a book by John Ortberg that talks about spiritual disciplines and how we can use those spiritual disciplines to live out the life God always intended us to be able to live out. And in the midst of that conversation, we, in the month of May, have been talking about the practice of secrecy, or as the title calls it, a life of freedom, and how to break off the approval addiction in our lives, the ways that we um, look to other people or other sources to be our um, identity, if you will. And we've been trying to talk about how to break those off. Jesus talked about learning to give, giving in secret, uh, praying in secret, and kindness. We've talked about that. We talked about the story that God is writing for our entire world and how our story plays a part in that. Um, letting go of the comparison. We want sometimes expect our life to be just like other people's, or sometimes we expect our life to go a certain way, and when it doesn't, um, we, we don't quite know what to do with that, that conversation, and um, committing to just the endurance that's needed, the personal growth that God's doing in our lives, and all of that really comes from being anchored in the story that God has always been writing. And we're going to pick up, and today's conversation really is a part of that. And so uh, if you're here today, maybe, and you didn't pick up those other sermons, the, some of what I'm going to say is based off of some of the other conversations we've already had. And so, um, but uh, hopefully you're, you'll get where I'm coming from as we walk through this message today. And so today I've entitled it as we wrap up this life of freedom, breaking approval addiction, this idea of living beyond ourselves, living beyond ourselves. When we, in the, the, the cultural world, when we talk about outliving your life, um, making a difference, if you will, we talk about investing for the future so that you can leave your family some financial stability that maybe wasn't there and you were the first generation to be able to do that, or ways that you can have endowments or ways that you can build um, nonprofit organizations that will outlive your life. There are all kinds of ways people try to live beyond themselves. They sow into the next generation. They minister to children and to teenagers and young adults because they know that that's going to outlive their life. And that is a, a scriptural principle that you will find all through God's story about the older generation being sure to pass on to the younger generation the truths of who God is and leading them to experience and encounter this same God, not just passing on the rules, okay? Sometimes we're, we're good at that concept of passing on what the rules are, but we need to pass on the relationship that we have with the creator of the universe to that next generation so that they live that out however God wants them or calls them to live it out. And we can't do that if we haven't done what we've talked about before and embraced the story that God is writing. And that is going to take faithful obedience on our part. Week after week, day after day, month after month, year after year, just being faithful and being obedient, believing we are seeing the goodness of God, even if we aren't seeing the goodness of God. Believing that God is at work in my life and he's at work in our world, even if CNN and Fox News tell me something totally different. They don't write the story God writes the story, and they don't get their news from him. They get it from themselves. 
And so if that's what you're inundating yourself with, you're not going to see what God is doing in the world around you. You're going to see whatever lens you're picking up from them. And so let's make sure that we're anchored in the story that God is doing, believing that God can do immeasurably more than anything we could ask or imagine, believing that in one day God can change everything. It doesn't take God long to work. When he acts, it can be in a moment. But a lot of times there's a lot going on behind the scenes up to that moment that you and I aren't aware of. And so we trust that God is at work. If you have your Bible, we're going to land on 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 here in just a moment. But I want to kind of set the stage for those two chapters by talking about um, the beginning. Basically, back in Genesis chapter 1 through 3, we see the beginning of what God is doing on the earth. He creates Adam and Eve in his image to represent him on the earth. He calls them to partner with him to to trust his version of what is good, to trust that what he is doing is the right way to live. And he sets them in a garden and he gives them two trees in the midst of that garden. And he tells them to rule the earth, to subdue the earth, to multiply and fill the earth, and to to represent him everywhere. The tree of life is, is basically about eternal life. It's about God's way. It's about God being the author of life, the source of life. It's the idea that you trust in the version of the story that God is telling. And then he gives them another tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, I don't want you to be confused. The Adam and Eve have an, uh, an idea of what the knowledge of good and evil is. They understand God's definition of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents our own version of good and evil. Am I going to trust what God says is good, the way of God's kingdom, or am I going to trust the way I see things? And we know that when Eve looked at the tree, she saw that the tree was good in her eyes and that it was pleasing in her eyes. And so her and Adam ultimately trusted in what they saw and not what God said. In the book of Proverbs, there are two times in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 14, 12 and Proverbs 16, 25, where the exact same verse is found. And this is what it says. There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. And that's what Adam and Eve did. They saw something that they believed was good, and by eating it, they redefined for all of human nature what is good and evil. However, God is still in the business of inviting people to partner with his version of good and evil. And we find this man Abraham, and then we find his sons, and then we find the nation of Israel, and then we find Jesus coming through the line of the nation of Israel, inviting all mankind to come into partnership with what God is saying and what God is doing. He has always been looking for people to partner with him. His disciples, however, just like many of us, they wrestle with his way of doing things versus the cultural way of doing things. In Matthew chapter 20, We see them jockeying for position because two of their mothers come to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, uh, just sidebar here. When you come into your kingdom, can one of my sons sit on your left and one of them sit on your right? Okay, that's a human, that's a human culture way of, of viewing things. In order to be great in the kingdom, I need proximity to the master. I need to be at his right hand or left hand. Okay, I got a jockey for position. I got to manipulate things so I get the promotion. 
We've talked about that over and over this month, about making sure that we're trusting the story that God is writing. So Jesus brings his disciples together, and he's saying, hey, guys, my kingdom doesn't work this way. And this is what he says, verse 25. You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. The way up in the kingdom is down. And yet for many people in the church, we're still trying to go up and we're, by going up. And we haven't understood that the kingdom is all about down first to get up. And whoever wants to be first must become your slave. I mean, we don't sometimes even want to be inconvenienced by other people. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. So when the Apostle Paul comes along in Romans chapter 12 and he says, hey, don't conform to the pattern of this world. He's not talking about what music you listen to or what movies you watch or what the, the culture of the world is necessarily. I mean, yeah, maybe those things too, but he's talking about the way the world operates. Don't think that manipulating and controlling and trying to be first is actually the way you're going to get ahead. You have to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You have to come into agreement with what God says is good, and His way is to serve. His way is to choose the least position, and He'll exalt you to the greatest position. I mean, if you want to fight for your own self, go ahead. But you will wear yourself out. But if you will trust that God's in control, and you will adapt your life to His version of the story, he will provide. You can come to know God as provider of your life when you embrace the story that he's writing. Abraham took his only son, the son of the promise, up on a mountain, put him on an altar, and was ready to sacrifice him. And in that moment, Abraham came to know God as Jehovah Jireh, my provider. See, in the church world, we want to have an encounter with God, and we want to know God as our provider, but yet we don't want to put anything on the altar that's actually going to lead us to experience Him as provider. We think, as long as I have a scripture verse, and if I just keep quoting that scripture verse over and over and over, that's just going to do it for me. No. We've got to conform ourselves to the point that we put everything on the altar. Anyone who does not give up everything that he has is not worthy of being my disciple. That's what Jesus says. But we try to, we try to like adapt that because we, we, we want an easier path to the kingdom. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, the apostle Paul is talking to the church and he says, I've been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of our Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Interestingly, we don't have Jesus ever saying that in the gospel. I mean, we have versions of it. We have things that he said that could be adapted to be that. But we do not have this phrase, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So it just goes to show us that not everything Jesus ever said when he was on earth was fully recorded. But these things were written so that you might believe that he is the son of God and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. We know that. But Paul comes along and says the, the kingdom of this world will say it's, it's about receiving. It's about how much you can get and accumulate and save and store. 
And the kingdom of God says it's actually more blessed to give than to receive. Not because of the prosperity gospel that if you give, you're going to get it back. Uh, Because when you learn to give, you actually come into a concept of the kingdom that transforms your heart and gives you the peace and contentment to live with whatever you have. And if you don't do that, I promise you, whatever you have will never be enough. If we try to hoard and collect and save, it, it will never be enough. There'll never be enough in your account that will give you the type of peace and security that can come from being someone who learns to give. Giving is not just about money. It's about generosity. It's about giving of our time and our energy and our talent. It's about being merciful and not treating others as they deserve, but treating them the way that we know God has treated us. It's about kindness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul is specifically referencing money. And in fact, the New Testament speaks a lot about money and how we should use it and how we should use it to build the kingdom and how we should make sure we hold on to it loosely, that we should trust God to be our provider and not ourselves. And so the Apostle Paul is talking specifically about money, but this could be applied to all kinds of areas of our lives, which I may not allude to, but I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to make application for all of us as we talk about it today and as we maybe walk through it later this week. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, we're going to read a huge chunk of scripture and then we're going to stop and we're going to take uh, some time to reflect on some of these things and uh, hopefully get you out of 11.15. So praise God, everyone that... Uh, can just pray that we ha- that, uh, that happens. Okay, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. I love that phrase because right from the outset, this is about what God is doing, not what the church is doing. It's not about what you were able to accomplish. It was about what God was doing through you. Everything we accomplish is him. Everything. Whether you acknowledge it or not, every good gift in life is from God. Everything we accomplish comes from God because God brings it to pass in our lives. We are not self-made people. Even people that reject God, it's the kindness of God that is blessing this world today, that is giving us breath in our lungs. And so it's always Him. They are being tested, this church in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. Oh, well, Pastor Tom, I can't be generous because I don't have a lot of money. False. Generosity doesn't matter how much is in your bank account. It has everything to do with the state of mind. It is our attitude that affects our generosity, whether that's financially or how we treat others, whether that's giving in an offering at church or how you tip at a restaurant. Yeah, I know I've been heavy on the tipping, but I've watched God use a tip this last week to make a difference in someone's life that I had been praying for, and I didn't even know it was happening. And so praise God for what he does in our lives without our even knowing. Okay, we are people who are generous to others, that we say please and thank you to our server, even if our server isn't doing what they're expected to do, and not because they're doing it because it's their job. It's because we are generous people, and we are seeing they're serving us, and so we say please and thank you. It's our attitude. We give abundantly out of our lives. And so, verse 3, I can testify that these people gave not only what they could afford, 
but far more. In fact, some versions say they gave beyond their ability. And in the assemblies of God, if you've been a part of our movement for any length of time, this verse is a verse that we talk about often. And we talk about it associated with missions, and we're going to do that again today. And we're going to talk about what's called a faith promise. And a faith promise is the amount of money that we as um, members of Restoration Church say, this is what I'm going to give to missions, to global outreach, to our global partners every single month. And I may have to make some sacrifices to make that happen. But I'm also going to trust that as I give what I can and as I sacrifice, that there's a supernatural component that's at play where God can actually enable me to give something that's not possible any other way. They gave beyond their ability. How do you give beyond your ability? Well, the only way that's possible is if God some way empowers it to happen. And I believe in the faith promise, and I believe in the way the Assemblies of God was set up to, to make this a natural part of our lives, and we'll talk about that as we keep going. But they did it of their own free will. This isn't about a guilt trip. This isn't about me telling you today, the Bible says you need to do this, follow the rules. You won't get that from me today. I want you to do it of your own free will. So, verse 4, they begged. <laughs> Some versions say pleaded. I don't think they like the word beg. But they begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. Now, I've been a pastor for, oh, man, 20-some years, 24 years. And I, I don't know that I've ever had anyone beg me to give in an offering. Ever. I don't know that I've ever begged to give in an offering. And so there's something at play in the, the peop these people's lives where they see their provision, their, their life, they see the, the circumstances they find themselves in. They're, they're in extreme poverty and hardship, and yet they're pleading to be a part in some way of what's happening for the believers in Jerusalem that are in need. They even did more than we hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. This idea of giving themselves to the Lord, this idea of commitment and surrendering and yielding, not just to the Lord, but to one another in the body of Christ. In the Western world, we're very individualistic. We're very much so uh, into our personal relationship with Jesus and just living out my faith in the way that I see fit. Um, and there's a communal aspect of the scripture that we in the Western world just don't understand. I was listening to a podcast this week by a counselor who was talking about teaching uh, a church in somewhere in Africa, I don't remember the country, and the people there had a hard time believing that as Americans in the Western world, we pay money to people who we will go to their office and we will sit in a room, someone we don't even know, and we will pay them money to give us advice. And the counselor, <laughs> ironically, is wondering, well, what do you do? Like, not just assuming that the Western way is right. And they said, well, we will go to the, the town elders and we will tell them what is going on. And then all of the elders will take a turn to speak from the youngest to the oldest. And as a community, we will come together and we will make that decision in the best way for the community. Huh. That's very biblical, that Eastern concept. That's not very Western. That's not how we view things. And so this idea that we give ourselves first to the Lord and we give ourselves first 
to one another is very, a very biblical concept. When we apply that to giving, I see that as this concept of giving to this place first. As a partner in Restoration Church, as a voting partner, or as a member of Restoration Church, we believe in something that the Bible calls tithe. And tithe is giving 10% of my income to the local church that I'm a part of. Now, again, I'm not going to tell you today the Bible says you should tithe. But as a church, we have agreed this is what we think the Bible says. And so as voting partners, we come together and we say we agree we will do this. And we will give 10% of our income more than just a symbolic act. We believe that the tithe is, is a supernatural act that binds us together. It shows our trust in the Lord. It shows our community with one another. And we give it. Now, I know in our, our Western world, we like to tell all of our money where to go. And so some people don't like to give 10% is a blanket check to a church. And so they just say, well, I'll give some to this and I'll give some to that and I'll give some to this and I'll give some to that. And I just want to I want to know where my money goes. Uh, to me, that breaks the point of what the tithe is all about. The tithe is saying, God, you're my provider. You provide for me, and I'm going to give this to the local body that you have put me in because that's what I believe is a part of your kingdom, and I'm going to do that according to what I think is in your heart, and I'm committing to it. And I don't have to tell it where to go. I'm giving it where I, uh, have, where I have been placed in the body of Christ. Now, if you're in a church where you say, well, but I don't know that they're spending the money well, maybe they're not being transparent, or maybe they're misusing funds. Well, if you can't trust them how to spend your money, why are you trusting your soul to them? So you probably should be in a different church if you can't trust the church you're in with your funds. And so I know that there are people in the room today that are not a part of Restoration Church and people that watch online. I know the majority of us are part of this body, but I don't just speak to us. This is what I believe God's word says for us. It's a way of beginning, of being transformed into a kingdom culture where we give 10% of our income. You can't tithe less than 10% because the word tithe means 10. Now, you can give less than 10%, but you can't tithe less than 10%. And the tithe, as we look at scripture, there are, are six, five scriptures that I put up on the screen. Um, references. If you want to look them up later, you can. But in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham gives 10% before there was a law to a guy named Melchizedek that we never met before. Jacob pledges to give God a tenth, a tithe of everything that he gets in Genesis 28-22. Now, along comes the law of Moses in Leviticus 27, and the law, the tithe, become law. It's something that the Jews begin to do that God requires of them, if you will. In Malachi chapter 3, the prophet comes along and tells the people of Israel they're actually robbing God by not paying their tithe. And then we, of course, come to the New Testament and everyone always asks, well, Pastor Tom, does the New Testament say that we have to tithe? Well, the New Testament actually doesn't say we have to do a lot of things. Matthew chapter 23, 23, I believe Jesus validates the concept of paying the tithe. But in the New Testament, what I think is most important is why or why not we do something. So if you're a tither, why do you tithe? Do you tithe out of guilt because you feel like you have to? Do you tithe because you're looking for something in return? Or are you tithing because you trust God, because you're committing something first to him? which I believe would be the reason to do it, 
not out of guilt, not out of trying to get something back from God. Why don't you tithe? If you're a non-tither, why not? Is it because you've really read the word and studied the word and you believe that this isn't called for in the New Testament? Or have you maybe twisted the word just to do what we want to do and we've found ways to back up what we've already chosen? I don't know what the reason you tithe or don't tithe is, but I would say study the word, pray through it, and make sure you commit to follow what you see God from beginning to end emphasizing in his book. In the New Testament, we have record of the tithe happening the same way or being used for the same things or the offerings, excuse me, being used for the same things that the tithe was in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. Galatians chapter 2, Romans chapter 15, talk to us about taking care of the poor. There are many other scriptures. Those are two. Those who teach the word should receive from those who hear the word, 1 Timothy chapter 5, Galatians chapter 6. And so those two scriptures tie together this concept of the Old Testament tithe with the New Testament gifts. And most of the giving that is recorded in the New Testament is actually beyond 10%. The tithe is never meant to be all we give. The tithe was meant to be a place where we begin to encounter God and come to know him as Jehovah Jireh, our provider, and then that we move from. Think of a toddler learning to make their first steps. That's how I see a tithe in the New Testament. And I know that, well, we can, we can see the faithfulness of God. We can see all of these things. But again, the markers of watching God work in our lives by making a faith promise, by giving regularly the tithe, we can see the faithfulness of God throughout our lives. If you stand at a dartboard or you stand at a blank wall and throw darts and then you run up and you draw a circle around it and say you hit the bullseye, that's not really uh, a bullseye. You have to stand and throw at a dartboard to be able to hit a bullseye. I look at giving in the New Testament much the same way. If our giving is sporadic and haphazard and as we think we're able and we never actually say, here's my commitment, here's where I'm going to put God to the test because in Malachi he actually says test him in this and see if I'm not faithful. How do we know God's at work? That's how I view the tithe. That's how I view giving in the New Testament. The Pharisees tithed. They even tithed their spices, but they missed the whole point. Next week we're going to start a conversation about the scripture. And a lot of times we take this book and we think of it as a book about uh, how to live our lives. This is all of the things that we should do, the right and wrongs, the black and whites, all of the commands that we're supposed to follow. I don't view this book this way. I don't view the Bible as the basic instructions before leaving earth. I view the Bible as an invitation to come into the way God has always been at work in his world and to partner with him in it. And so if I only do the things that I can find commanded, black and white, that's going to limit my experience of God. But if I understand that God is a generous God, that God is a merciful God, that God is a, has kindness that blows my mind, and I come into that invitation, and I don't need a direct command to follow it out in my life. I do it because I know that God just does things beyond my ability, and it's not about what he commands me to do. It's about what he invite me, invites me to partner with. And when I begin to do those things, I begin to encounter him in ways I could never encounter him without it. That's how I view giving in the New Testament, but we must move on. So in verse 6, we've urged Titus, 
who encouraged your giving in the first place to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Apparently they started, but they got either tired or weary or maybe they didn't have enough to finish. And Titus had to come along and he had to help them finish. Since you excel in so many ways, you excel in your faith, in your gifted speakers, in your knowledge, in your enthusiasm, in your love from us, I want you to excel in this gracious act of giving. I am not commanding you to do this. I love this verse. But I'm testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. <laughs> now, if I did that, if I stood up here today and said, hey, I'm going to compare our giving as Restoration Church to the church down the street and see how generous we are, I'm guessing I'd get a lot of phone calls. And yet the Apostle Paul does it. Now, I don't think this is a negative thing. I think there's a way to read it that's negative, and I think there's a way to read it that would be an encouraging or maybe a motivating way, and I believe that's how it's supposed to come across. I don't think this is a dig. I don't think this is, hey, hey, uh, come on, that church is better than you guys. That's not the intent of the Apostle Paul at all, but it is a great verse. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Here's my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. See, in some way, they made a commitment, and they fell behind in it. And yet the Apostle Paul comes along and says, I want you to finish. So there are people that say, well, I don't know that the Bible calls us to make these types of commitments. Well, yeah, it probably doesn't command us to, but I think there's a benefit to it. Last year, the Apostle Paul goes on, you were the first who wanted to give, and you were the first to begin doing it. Now you should finish what you started. You hear this language being repeated over and over. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Those words eager and willing and cheerful over and over. These ideas of finishing it and following through and commitment over and over in this passage. Give in proportion to what you have. Nobody should go into debt to make a faith promise. Ever. If you can't afford it, don't give it. But if you can sacrifice, give it. If you can trust God to supply in abundance, promise that and give as God provides. God does not provide through MasterCard or Visa. Amen. Okay. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And you give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your, sh your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty. And for those of us who live in the North American continent, we have plenty. And we always have. We are wealthy. And we could always learn to be more generous. Always. We can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. 
As the scriptures say, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. That's a reference all the way back to gathering manna in the book of Deuteronomy, which is a great story that I don't have time to finish, so we won't go into that. Then he goes into chapter 9, and I'm not going to read all 15 verses here. We won't have time for that, but I'd encourage you to read these two chapters again later this week, different versions, process what's being said. But he says to them again, I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem, for I know how eager you are to help. And I've been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you and Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one granted, given grudgingly. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. And a small crop is good. It's better than no crop. But one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. I could go on and talk more about giving, about tithing. Uh, I think tithing serves a purpose in our lives. I think it helps to set our affection or where it needs to be. It helps us to encounter God as our provider. I think it's a great litmus test. Again, I'm not going to tell you it's commanded in the Scripture. In the Assemblies of God, we ask all of our ministers to practice tithing. We believe the Scripture calls for it. The kingdom calls for it. It's a beginning. We also believe in the faith promise. And as you leave today, you're going to get a copy of this pamphlet that talks more about the faith promise in a card. And I'm going to ask that during the month of May that you consider making a faith promise to give every single month to our global partners. Right now, we support 38 global partners around the world to the tune of $2,400 a month. I would like to stretch that to 40 global partners and $2,500 a month, which is insane because we don't even hit $2,400 a month right now. Yeah, we're going backwards every month with our global partners. But the need is greater than what we are currently doing. There are South Dakota missionaries, missionaries from our state, that now want to go overseas. Two of them I'm going to introduce to you over the next couple months. Two of them we have just taken on recently. And I would love to see us do that. But I can't do it in good faith, one, unless the Lord says do it. Or we respond together and say, we're going to do it. We could give more. And I want to challenge you, what can you give? Beyond a tithe, what could you give to Global Outreach every month? What could you give if you sacrificed something? Pray into that. In fact, I've invited everyone to be a part of, either on Slack or through version, a Bible reading plan for this week to begin to process and pray through that together. But there's also a part of that that I want you to pray into, and it talks about it in this pamphlet, to begin to ask God, God, if I did this much, would you supply something more? And if 
even if it's five dollars, even if it's a dollar more than what you think is possible, would you stretch yourself, not because the Bible commands you, but because I hope you get to encounter a God who provides and shows himself faithful when his people catch his heart for his world. I've been a part of this church for 24 years. Missions has been a part of the Assemblies of God since its founding. It's part of the lifeblood of the Assemblies of God. The older generation that caught the vision for missions and global partners carried this baton very well in the years that I've been here. But I promise you that over the last several years, what's happened is from that older generation, many of them are passing away or moving away to go live closer to family so those family can take care of them. And this baton that's supposed to get in the hands of the younger generation has gotten dropped. And so my challenge to those of you that are still a part of our body and the older generation, help the younger generation see the faithfulness of God. Tell them your story. Invite them for dinner. Invite them for coffee. Talk about what God has done in your life. Talk about, this isn't about being a good Assemblies of God person. This is about the faithfulness of God. This is about getting the gospel in places around the world where the gospel needs to go. If you're a younger member, rather than just say, well, I think that was for the past, have a conversation with someone who's older than you and say, tell me about your giving. Tell me about how God has done it in your life. Share your experience with me. Because whether whatever side of the baton you're on, we can blame the other side or we can just do something about it. I'm just calling us to do something about it. That's my hope. And that's my desire. That's what I've been praying for us as a body this past week. And that's what I'm going to continue to pray as we go through the, the remainder of this month. And so that's my desire and that's my prayer for each and every one of us as we go through this final month of May. Start somewhere. Make a commitment. I don't care if you make a commitment of a dollar a month. Make a commitment. Start somewhere. Be consistent. Be faithful. Let God stretch your imagination in the area of giving. And so, Heavenly Father, thank you for the ways that you have showed kindness to us. God, even while we were your enemies, you demonstrated your love and your kindness towards us by sending your Son to this earth. As we've read today, Jesus, you became poor that we might become rich. And we know that that's not about finances. We know that that's about the blessing of God and the kingdom of God. And yet, it affects our finances. It affects how we spend our money and our resources. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that over these next few weeks that you would challenge each and every one of us in this room in the area of tithing. God, for those that are tithers, I would pray that you challenge us to, to what it is in our lives that maybe needs to be changed. Maybe we need to go beyond the tithe. Maybe we've been giving tithe out of guilt or out of obligation, and we need to begin to change that and begin to see it differently. God, for those that aren't tithing, I pray that you would speak to our hearts about what you would have us to do. If we're on the right path, if we're following you in obedience, Holy Spirit, make that plain in our hearts today that we would not change out of guilt 
or obligation, but we would change only because of what you have revealed to us through your word and by your spirit. And so, Father, I pray for just wisdom as we go through these final weeks of this month, as we continue to reflect on approval addiction and serving others and giving and the story that you're writing for our lives. I pray in the area of finances that you would speak plainly and speak clearly to every member of this body, God, about how we can partner with you in what you are doing around the world through the partners that we have as a part of this church. So Holy Spirit, we ask for your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. As you leave today, our hosts have these for you. Uh, One per family if you want to. You're more than welcome to take two. uh, But they'll have those at the door. Don't forget to stop by the table in the back. Um, Calendars are back there. Information about our church is back there. Uh, Events that are coming up. Offering baskets are on the table as well. God bless you as you go today.